Uh, this is Dave Broadbeck sitting here in my, what I euphemistically call a podcasting studio, but it's actually the uh, room I do podcasts in. It's not really a studio. It's my daughter's old bedroom. That is neither here nor there. Uh, the following lecture is from Psychology 3926-4926. Uh, special topics in cognitive psychology, animal cognition. Hope you enjoy it. So, um, today this is going to be pretty much introductory stuff, and it's stuff that you know, um, most of it, I think. So, our book uh, is by, my, actually, my PhD supervisor, uh, Sir Shuttleworth. That's one of the things we're using. We're also, of course, using uh, the podcast that I did. Did you listen to the podcast? Good. At least some of you did. <laughs> I was new last night. I was pretty happy with it. Um, she has a bigger book that I chose not to use. Um, it's also a little bit older, but it's sort of one of these state of the... It's probably the, the, the classic book in the field ever. It's called Cognition, Evolution, and Behavior. Um, it's about twice as expensive as the one we're using. It's also about 83 times as dense. So I decided not to use that. But it seems to me that that's a pretty good starting point. So cognition, evolution, and behavior, these are really the things that we're talking about in this course. Um, and of course, most of this stuff is a review. By the way, here's the book. So you can see it's $94. So it's cheaper to get the one I have that I chose, also of hers. So I still am supporting my PhD advisor, yet not making you guys pay so much money for something. That's still actually not a bad price for a textbook at that level even though it is eight years old. So cognition, that's about mechanism, right? That's about how thinking works. That's, that's what cognition's about. It's all about mechanism. Whoops, wrong button. So perception, storage, processing of information is what we're talking about here. So the perception, storage, and processing of information. And basically, it's some internal representation of the external world. Right? So if you think about it, here's taking cognition from Lori. Anybody? No? Who's taking memory from me? Who's taking memory from me in the winter? Uh, so we talk about representational time, both those courses, right? Because to manipulate information, you have to somehow represent, right? So somehow your cognitive systems, if you want to call them that, cognitive architecture, the hell you want to call it, mind, if you want, has to somehow represent the external and internalize it. So that's Perception, sensation perception, and then you, we talk about cognition, which is really just a... I mean, sensation perception and cognition are really just different. It's a continuum, it seems to me. Right? For going from one to the other. So what we talk about a lot um, are, is a fancy term, functioning isomorphism. What the hell is that? Well, a functioning isomorphism is really just a representation of the real world 
that using a simple mathematical transformation, we can reproduce the real world. A map is a functioning isomorphism of the relationship between uh, different geographical features. Okay? So if you think about it, you pull the maps app up on your phone, and you take a look, <coughs> and it says that a home university is here, and let's say you want to get to Metro, because you want to spend too much for groceries. So you want to go to Metro, and you walk down really narrow aisles that are just randomly organized. There is no organization in that place. Hate it in there. But the meat's good. <laughs> Um, so, you want to go to Metro. You look at, your, at the map, and it says you're here. And you can look at it and say, okay, I want to go that way and then that way. Well, you know you're not really going up. You know you're going north. You know you're not going left. You're going west. But you know what that means. And you know the distances? The distance and direction, that can be it really it's just a simple vector transformation. It really is a simple transformation. Most of us, of course, nowadays don't even read maps. We just ask our phone how to get somewhere, and we just blindly follow it, <laughs> right? But in the old days, we used to use maps. And you know if you looked at a map now, a globe, right? You can roughly see how far apart things are, etc. Okay? So that's what's called a functioning isomorphism. So if an animal is, let's say, to represent space, it's going to represent what? It's going to represent different, um, well, it's going to di distance and direction, probably. Because a very simple transformation, mathematical transformation, can turn that into, back into the real world. You can sort of reverse engineer something and get the real world from it without a loss of any information. Does that make sense? Okay? So that's really what representations are, is they're functioning isomorphisms of the real world. Okay? Okay. It's not necessarily consciousness. And in fact, for our purposes, it's probably just not consciousness. We could probably just ignore consciousness. Right? We can probably just ignore consciousness. And there's a pretty good reason for that. So let's see what my next slide is. Tell me, because I don't know how we'll get a Nobel Prize together. How are we going to measure consciousness? I don't know that you can. I don't know that it's possible. I can't prove to you that I'm conscious. I could be a very clever automaton, very well designed. You can't prove to me that you're conscious. I make a pretty good guess that you are, because you seem to behave the way things that we call conscious things behave. So I just go, yeah, you're probably conscious. But I don't know how I measure it. Any thoughts? We could cut you open to prove you're not an automaton. You could, but would that prove I was, was conscious? Was conscious enough? 
Also, you're weird, Jay. Find a little creepy. But it's a little joke. Um, how could you prove someone's conscious? Yeah, okay, how would you do that? I don't know. How would you do that, linguist lady? Can you prove a negative? Prove you're conscious. No, you're not proving, you're not proving a negative. You've got to prove I'm conscious. But if you're proving that you're, you can... You worded it strangely. I'm well aware. I'm saying it. Yeah, proving you're not, not. Yeah, in that case. So not, not is they negate each other. Or... I, I, I don't know how you do this. That's what I'm saying. So I don't know how you do it in a person who I'm sure is conscious. I'm sure you're all conscious. Or you're all the figments of my imagination. It's one or the other. How would you do it in a... A dog. Like, at least with a person, I can ask you questions about your internal mental life and you can respond to me. Right? You can tell me. And I can go, oh, that's just like my internal mental life. Or it's similar to it. Or it's about cutting people open. But it's, it's something that is sensible enough. It's about your internal mental I can ask you a question, and you can respond. I can't do that with a freaking chimp, or a chickadee, or a rat. I think some animals probably do have some sort of self-awareness. I just know how I can measure it, that's all. I don't know how I measure it. I literally have no clue. So any thoughts on that? No? Right, so it's not going to be consciousness per se we're going to be talking about. So not consciousness, but we will use terms that we use in human psychology, let's call it that. So emotion. Right? So we'll talk about fear. We'll talk about, you know, surprise. I mean... Um, the Squirrel of Wagner model is all surprise. It's all this of, of learning, like, for example. It's all about surprise. So fear. Um, we'll say, I'll say an animal knows something. Because if it has represented something and I can show that it represented it by its behavior, I'll just say it knows something. It's not the same way I know things. I said the other day that... Getting inside an animal's head is not something to try to do. You can't do it. Right? You can't do it. But if an animal behaves as if it knows something, and if it, well, I'll just, well, not as I want to say it knows something. Someone someday may be able to, to, just, to uh, study consciousness in humans or in non humans. Neural interface? How so? How does that work? See, so you saying things, right? Cut them open. Put a neural interface in them. Um, no, it may be the case that if we can see, like, for example, uh, you've done this great behavior. Uh, if we read the output of the occipital log, we can, now we're not there yet, but you can actually see images nowadays. It takes a lot of fine tuning of an MRI. It's about a it's not a really good picture. It's about a thousand by a thousand pixels, so it's not great. But you get a notion of what an animal would be seeing, in this case, a human. But do you know what it's thinking about? <coughs> we may get there. We may get there someday. 
But maybe later. So someone may someday be able to study consciousness, but that's not really our concern. There's enough interesting stuff without worrying about consciousness. And again, most of you guys are psych students. There's a few biology students in here. And the psych students know that there's enough interesting stuff you can study without worrying about consciousness. Right? And as I said the other day, 99% probably of, of, your, of your cognition, you're not even aware of and it's not accessible to consciousness anyway. I can just show you that you have it. And not all complex behavior has to be cognitive. When I say cognitive, I get that in quotes because is it something more than just stimulus response? That's what I mean by cognitive in that case. Does it involve some representation of the world? Some complicated representation. So something could be a simple stimulus response type learning, and it doesn't have to be something complicated. The complexity of behavior is not necessarily indicative of complicated cognition. So we might see very complicated behavior with very simple cognitive and neural architecture. Right? Of course, it's about mods and bats, my favorite thing. Some of you in here have heard this already today. Um, you know this. Who here has never heard me talk about mods and bats? Like one and two of you. Three of you, wow! Okay, this is going to be fun. Um, <laughs> moths have ears they're on the sides of their bodies, uh, and it's basically like two neurons, A1 and A2. Looks like this. Here's a sort of schematic. You can see here there's a tympanic membrane. It's actually very similar to the way our ears work, except that our ears aren't on the sides of our bodies, and they don't take up you know, a third of here. And also, then I'm not a moth with an exoskeleton. So... It's hooked up to two neurons, A1 and A2. It's really a very straightforward setup. Um, these neurons are not frequency sensitive. So moths can't tell the difference between a low and a high note. But they are only sensitive to really high frequencies. So it says not, not sensitive to low frequencies. When I say low, I mean below 112,000, whatever it is, 1,000 hertz well past the, 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 the limit of human hearing. You can't hear sounds that high. Okay? But bats send out sonar that is that high up. Okay? And bats hunt, that's how bats represent the world. Uh, the sensory, the representation a bat has of the world is probably as detailed with sonar. As, the represent, as, as, as we are able to represent the world with vision. Okay? That's how accurate it is. Um, so it's, I, I mentioned this this morning, in fact, in brain behavior, you could probably what? If you, if you thought about it, you could easily do a one-second difference in an echo. You could discriminate that. Sure. I bet with training, you could do a tenth of a second. Right? We couldn't do a hundredth of a second. There's no way a human can do that. But a bat can do this, 1.0 times 10 to the negative 9 seconds. So they can represent dis distance beautifully. They, they paint a picture with sand. Okay? So these moths, these noctoid moths, better be very sensitive to this, because if they're not, they die. They become lunch or dinner. Really, it's all it's at night, so... 
what do you call it? I don't know. Food. Food. Yeah, food's good. Part of the nocturnal buffet. Okay, so. Um, as you can see here, you've got the ear here, and then it's hooked up to muscles on the opposite side. And it's basically, with, except for a few interneurons, it's a direct connection between the ear and the muscle on the opposite side. Okay? Questions so far? Many of you, this is review for the three or four of you in here that have heard this before. Does this make sense? And it's literally as simple as I'm making it out to be. And it's not very complicated. This is an animal that has neurons in the order of thousands of them, maybe 10,000 neurons. Okay, so this is not a complicated animal. To compare, we have most, you know, in the human cortex, most of our brain, like most of our neurons, have about 10,000 synapses. This is an animal with maybe 10,000 neurons. It's a pretty simple thing. So, you take, this was done by a guy named Rader in 1956, <coughs> if I'm not mistaken, place a microelectrode across the cell membrane, two cells, A1 and A2, play a sound. Sound is uh, represented here. It's the louder it is, is the higher up this graph is. This represents fire, okay? That's A1, that's A2. A2 doesn't, doesn't matter how loud it is. It doesn't seem to make a difference. You can see here, proportional firing to intensity, right? A2 just starts firing like crazy when it's very loud. More firing than with a closer bat. That's all that means. So this is a functioning isomorphism. In fact, the amount of firing is proportional to distance. If that's the case, the nervous system of this moth is actually representing distance of a predator, isn't it? So that is a representation. It's an exceedingly crude one in some respects. But it still is a representation of the distance a predator is from the prey item, in that case, the animal that's actually doing the representing. A2 only fires the very loud sounds. In other words, the, the A2 means I'm about to get eaten. I'm, the animal's so close, the bat is so close, I'm, I'm finished. Okay? Questions so far? For many of you, this is review. As I mentioned this morning, brain behavior, there's one class I don't talk about this in. One, advanced statistics. <laughs> it's the only place I can't figure out a way to bring it in. Yeah. It comes up. Yeah, yeah, well, it's pretty tough. It's pretty hard. We're just taking the advanced stats next term, 36. Anybody? A couple of years from here? Good. It's fun. <laughs> no, it's fun. It's, it's a good time. You're a math person. No, not really. No, not really. I'm not mathy. I'm, I was good at math, but I mean, I was good at most stuff. I was. I was good at school. I wasn't good at English. Uh, that's why I took it, never took it at university. I figured, when am I going to go to England? <laughs> so, um, then I went to England, so. No, but I never took a, I wasn't that good in, in, in English. I wasn't good in, in French either. I stopped taking French grade 11. I got a C. My wife's a French instructor. <laughs> so, I wasn't good at art. My wife's an artist. I don't know. I wake up every morning wondering why she's with me. And thanking myself. Yeah, I said, who good? She's still here. Um, 30 years, man. 30 years. 
I believe she's the next person to use this room. After. Well, at 4 o'clock. I don't care who's after leaving at 2.30. I don't think anybody's... Uh, maybe I'll leave a little message in the room. Okay. So the bat must be very close if A2 is fine. Okay. So what's happening here is... I should say the opposite wing, because it's not that same wing. The opposite, if A1 on the left fires, the opposite wing, so this one, this make this this wing beat faster, and then it makes it turn. And let's see if that, what's going to happen. So if, uh, let's see. So if Courtney's the, she's she's a bat, and I'm a moth. I'm bad the wrong side, but I should be the defendant, you have to act, so whatever here. So if she's the bat, and she's making a lot of noise, and hit my ear, because my ear, I'm down, remember, I'm a moth, <laughs> so, here. so this wing starts to beat faster, it pulls, not as much as this one, it pulls me around until, oh, same distance, and now I'm flying directly away from, 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 from uh, the back. Pretty neat, right? So that's pretty cool, and if you don't, like I said this morning, brain behavior, if you don't know, if you don't think this is cool, you don't know what cool means. Like, it's cool, right? It's really neat stuff. Um, A2 just makes the animal go crazy. It turns off all inhibition in the moth nervous system. So it actually acts basically the same as the chicken with the head cut off. So this is unpredictable. It's just random. It's last second, you know, evasive maneuvers. That's bat right here. That's... I hate moths. I'm okay. I'm cheering for the bat. Um, bats are so cool, right? You ever like sitting out in your backyard or something? And you look up and you, it's like 9:30 at night in the summer, and you see something flying. You go, "That was not a bird," because <laughs> birds don't fly like that. That was a bat. They're fun until they run into you. Well, well, they, yeah, but they're doing that on purpose because they can hear you coming. <laughs> I mean, this that's, bats are cool. Like, I had a. Lori almost did a postdoc with a guy to work with bats, and I, I sort of I, guy at McMaster, and um, the simple reason, I, the only reason I wanted to work with this guy, or one of the reasons, was because if someone said, "Who are you?" I could go, "I'm Batman." Just, to, just for that, the only. This guy would go catch bats in the wild, and he had the bat symbol on the side of his van. <laughs> of course he did. That's what you do, right? <laughs> So a two-neuron ear can encode in three-dimensional space where the animal is, where the predator is. You think that's neat? Yeah, it's neat. It doesn't look, it looks, quote, cognitive. It looks like there's a lot of calculations being done, a lot of, quote, looks like consciousness. It's not. It's being done with an exceedingly simple architecture. Just a few neurons, like counting on, on, on two hands neurons. That's neat. And the animal's actually representing, the animal's nervous system is doing vector mathematics with two neurons. Well, four, because there's two on each side. Because it's doing distance and direction. Okay. So when I tell you later on in the course, when we talk about navigation, I say that, and I tell you that Tunisian desert ants navigate by the position of the stars, which they do, the same way sailors navigate, well, they, now sailors use GPS. 
<laughs> I'd like to see an ant set up a GPS system. But that these ants actually navigate by the position of the stars, and they know what they know what latitude they're at and what time of day it is. That's how the same way sailors navigate with a sextant. You know that thing, and they look through it, and they look at the stars, and go R, and then they know to go that way to go catch. I don't know the Americans and take all their gold or something. Something with the Assassin's Creed black flag. But they weren't Americans yet. No. I was conflating that and various kinds of tears But point is, <coughs> we use ephemeris tables and these things, and you know, ants just do that. They don't actually know that they're doing it, and it can be a it could be a very simple neural system. This is a very simple neural system, but what they're doing is vector mathematics. Okay. Questions about that? So for those of you who haven't heard me talk about this like a hundred times, any questions, especially you guys, because most people in here have heard me talk about mods and bats so much that they're sick of it. They probably stopped paying attention the last 10 minutes. <coughs> this one, oh, Christ, brought back some mods and bats. Do other profs have still things they tell in every single class? Like, does Paul have a thing? No? So oh, I didn't think of this I don't even know what that is, but it's probably stupid because it's Paul. Do you remember that, do you remember that dress uh, in like 2012 with the two colors? Yes, the dress, sure. Dwayne brings that up every class. That sounds like something Dwayne would do. Okay, no, that's good, that's good, because he knows that stuff. Okay, good. Good to know. I taught Dwayne animal behavior. He has seen these, that slide, those slides. Well, not those exact ones. I don't think I was using PowerPoint then. Okay, so... Why does the animal behave the way it does? First of all, there's an approximate cause and its development. Uh, the approximate cause is something like genetics. Yeah, let's go with genetics. Or neural programs, things like that. Development can include learning. So it's change over time in the animal's lifetime. That's what we call cause. And then... Function is the ultimate cause of something. It's called the ultimate cause, which is horrible because it's not a cause. I, I hate, oh, first of all, I hate this in many ways. I like just cause and function. If we call a function a cause, <laughs> then it's not cause anymore, which is annoying. Also, the word ultimate is stupid because it makes it sound better than proximate, and it's not. Um, this is what it accomplishes. Okay. So with the bat and the moth, from the moth's point of view, the cause is the sound. Uh, the development of that, I'm sure when they're little friggin' caterpillars, they aren't hooked up like that yet. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know much about bugs. The function, well, what's the function of this? It's uh, evasion of a predator. The evolution of it, I don't know the evolutionary history of that, but there must be some history whereby in the past, Moths who didn't have this characteristic got eaten and didn't pass their genes on, right? The thing is, it's very easy to mix these things up. And you might think, how? Why do birds fly south through winter? Why do birds migrate? Avoid cold weather? They, they, they like cold weather or don't like cold weather? Avoid cold weather. Avoid cold weather. It seems to me that's what they what, what accomplishes. You could reword that to make it a cause. 
But saying they fly south to avoid cold weather or to get or to get food, that's what it accomplishes. It's really easy to, to mix up cause and function. Birds migrate because the cause of it is the days get shorter and something called migratory restlessness happens. It kicks a, a, a system in and they start navigating. Unless they're in the function of it is to get away from a harsh environment. But that happens after they get there, right? So it's easy to mix those up. So that's an example of why do birds migrate. Right. So it's, that's an easy one to basically to mix up. We also know that, depending on the species at least, that might even be a single gene to, uh, encoding the direction they migrated. Black-capped warblers, we know that it's literally a single gene that controls the direction they migrate. Very cool. And distance they migrate. Crazy, right? Now, people often talk about behavior, is it innate, is it learned? It's not a really good distinction, right? Because innate makes it sound like something happens without any effect of the environment whatsoever. And I can't think of a lot of things that work that way. And something, when you say something, well, it's learned, not innate, it makes it sound like there is no effect of biology, no effect of neural systems. And, or, you know, it can't be, because there's got to be a system that allows you to learn. So that's, I don't like those distinctions, innate versus learned. You'll hear them. I might use them as shorthand, but I don't think there's anything that's purely one way or the other. It can't be. Great example, human language. Right? We have, pre-functionally, the ability to learn language. There's something cool about human language that other animals don't have, right? Syntax and semantics. Um, other animals communicate, no argument there, but they don't have the same. It's, it's not nearly what we do. But the language I learn depends on what I'm exposed to, right? And if you're exposed to more than one, you can learn more than one. It's not a problem. But if I couldn't learn language, if I didn't have those what we call cognitive modules available, no matter how much English I heard around me, I never would learn to speak English. On the other hand, no matter how much you tell your kids hockey statistics when they're little kids, they don't necessarily internalize those things. They just learn language. Believe me, I tried. <laughs> So really, that's a nature-nurture thing. And I think, I think most of you know my view on this, which is it's a stupid discussion. You can't have an you can't have environment without genes. You can't have genes without environment. It's that great Donald Head quote, right? Trying to determine how much of a characteristic is due to 
genes and how much is due to the environment. It's like trying to determine how much of the area of a football field is due to its length and how much is due to its width. It's like, just stop. That's, I know it sounds clever, right? It's Donald Hatt, it's not me. But the point is, it's a ridiculous argument. Let's get over it. We are biological beings. And denying that's stupid. Also denying there's an effect of the, of the environment is stupid. The interesting thing is, there aren't very many people going around saying there's, it's, everything's pre-programmed in you. But there literally are people saying that humans are basically blank slates. <laughs> and, and, and I don't think they get the absurdity of their position. It's absurd. It's really, it's literally absurd. It's, it's, it's just asinine, that position. Yet people seriously believe it. It's as asinine as saying everything's predetermined by your genes. That's stupid. People, people don't say that. Like, you've got to be... If someone said that, you go, what? But people, sometimes they'll say, people with educations will say, you know, uh, it's just all your environment. You better go, oh, look, better write that down. <laughs> There's a book by Steve Pinker called uh, The Blank Slate. It's a good book. <coughs> Just saying. All right. So how are we going to approach studying comparative cognition in British psychology? Uh, and that's part of what the reading I just sent you guys, which again is a pretty quick reading, is about. So there's the traditional or anthro... What Sarah Shuttleworth calls the anthropocentric approach, which I think is very provocative of her, which is great. Um, basically, it works like this. And we talked about this the other day when I sort of introduced everything, which is people can do this, whatever this is, Rats can. Right? So it's like people show primacy and recency effects. You think rats do? Actually, that's not a ridiculous question because there's so there's gonna be a lot of cognitive uh, similarities in how systems work, we wouldn't be surprised to see cognitive to see recency and primacy effects. It's probably still the most popular approach for a lot of people, though people say they don't do it anymore because it's out of fashion to say you do this. <laughs> um, but I think people still do it. It's less common than it was. There was a time when I was in graduate school where we were thought of as all nuts, those of us that didn't do things like this. So the traditional approach works like this, focuses on things like memory and representation, just like we do in human cognition. Um, and the choice of species to be studied is based on convenience. You know what's easy to get? Rats. <laughs> and I'm not making this up. When you order rats from Charles River in Gatineau, Quebec, when you order 10, you get one free. <laughs> At least last time I ordered rats, that's what we did. They, they said you get one free. And they, they FedEx your rats in a box with food in it, and you think how they get water. It's actually uh, like jello, but it's water, it's water, it's gelatinized. So the rats are fine. You open up the box and they're all just in a pile. They're doing great. Nothing better than getting, you know, somebody, this was back, last time I ordered rats, I was in Newfoundland, and somebody called, in fact, Wayne was in the lab that year. Uh, he wasn't working, 
working as an assistant for me. Anyway, there's this phone call from like one of the secretaries. Dr. Brad Beck, there's a box here for you. And it's moving. Go <laughs> get them. Some rats. Rats are easy to get. Pigeons are not easy to get, but they live 20, 30 years. Pigeons are great. Monkeys, hard to house, but they last a long time. But rats are great. You're done with them, you kill them. That's what you do. Or you give them away. You know the amount of paperwork for giving away lab rats? Because all these protocols, because people think maybe they have diseases, but that's for like medical experiments. It's like we're just ran on a maze, man. So there's kind of an implicit notion here of a phylogenetic scale. The idea that at the bottom there's I don't know fish and uh, bugs and such, and then you move up to you get your birds, then you get your mammals, then you got us, and above that is the angels and then God. <laughs> so it's. It's a notion that that's how, that's the, the knowledge of evolution a lot of these people seem to have, or it looks like that anyway. Now, Ewan McPhail is probably the best example I, of someone who's into the traditional approach. I'm not going to say Ewan McPhail believes that there's a phylogenetic scale. Don't, don't misunderstand me there. He's always been pleasant to me, even though I think his ideas are bunk. So, if we find no differences between species... That's our null hypothesis. There's no differences. And then we look for differences, but what about if it's motivational, the difference? Right? So let's say we find two species are different on some task. One species better than the other one. But what if one's more motivated than the other? In other words, what if the food you're using as a reward is much more delicious to a junko than a chickadee? Then they'll work harder. Right? Like, think of this. If I said to half the room, you will get, okay, so if I said to the left half of the room, if you write me an extra essay, you get a potential extra 20 points in a course. And if I said to the right half of the room, if you write me the same essay they write, you potentially get an extra one point. <laughs> Theirs will be better. <laughs> That's the way it's going to be. 20 delicious points, one not so delicious point. I can explain that. It's not that people over here are smarter. I think you probably are. But, right? So it's not that. It's, it's a motivational difference. So whenever we find a difference, McPhail goes, could be motivation. So we have to not reject HO. Except for humans, of course, we're special and awesome. Yep, yep, yep. Humans great. Humans win all the time. And by the way, I'm not denying that we're the most cognitively complex animals on this planet. That would be a stupid thing to deny. There used to be this thing on the Discovery Channel. I don't think they don't do it anymore because they don't have that Daily Planet show anymore, science news show. But they used to do this. Um, segment where they would ask experts things, people would write in questions this that long ago. Or you know, fill out a form on a website that had a little construction worker sitting under construction a long time ago. Um, and one of the questions they asked was, what's the smartest animal? 
And they, they went to me. Pardon, I think they went to me simply because Suzanne McDonald, who worked with the Discovery Channel, said, that's Dave Broadback. I, I'm sure that's what it is. Anyway, I said, I don't know. Uh, Clark's Nutcrackers can remember 25,000 seeds locations in a 40-kilometer radius for six months. That's pretty impressive. Never seen a Clark's Nutcracker drive a car or build a civilization, though. People are pretty special. But, so we're special. Everything else is all the same. It's all blank slate. Now, the synthetic approach says that McPhail's approach is illogical. It's called synthetic not because it's different than natural fibers. It's synthetic because it synthesizes field biology and neuroscience and psychology and life history together to make predictions. So this sees those ideas as illogical. Let's look at behavior from an evolutionary perspective, right? So let's look at behavior in the field. Let's actually see what animals do out in the world. Okay. Let's see what they're doing out in the world. And we'll choose species or problems that we're interested in based on the field behavior. So, for example, if you're looking at food storing birds, you might say, why would, what are differences between storing and not storing birds in? The field. Well, obviously, one stores, one doesn't store food. But one of the big things is that food stores don't migrate. They hang around over the winter. And if they, so when they wake up in the morning, they go find stored food so they can, they don't die. They still starve to death. You gotta understand, birds are small. Songbirds are, they weigh nothing. Talk about the same thing, like 11 grams. So, We'd look at the behavior of the field and we'd say, hmm, food stores, non-stores, food stores should be better at things where they remember spatial locations, but it shouldn't matter about, they're, they're, they shouldn't be any better or worse about color, memory. So then if we test food storing and non-storing species based on eating tasks that are about spatial locations, they should be better on average than non-stores, but their color Ability to remember, remember colors or shapes shouldn't matter. We should be able to guess that their hippocampus part of your brain, as you know, that is important in spatial processing, should be bigger than non-stores. Things like that. Those are all true. And I made a prediction. Right? I didn't say, I bet rats could do it. I don't see if rats could do it. No, I am a little bit making fun of the other way to do By a little bit, I need a ball. But it's also the case that there's no prediction made. It's a, it's a program of demonstration. It's, look at that, see that? Pretty cool, right? Rat did that, what do you think? Publish my paper. Come on, tenure, let's go. I want a research grant. I'm gonna teach rats to drive cars. It's not, it's not, quite, it's not like that. Completely, but or you know what I think will happen? You go and look. Okay. 
Oh, you might say, what about that whole motivational thing? The thing is, you see, error cancels. So if in one task, it's a motivational difference, like the, the food story non-stores I talk about spatial memory. If, it, if in one task, maybe it is motivation. If in 20 different tasks, it always rank orders the same way, I think we can say that it isn't always motivational. Like I said, error cancels. Baby, I don't know what the baby in there for. It cancels, right? You know, some days you have a good day, some days you have a bad day. So if you're writing a test and you had a good day, your marks are a little too high. You write a test to a bad day, marks are a little too low. Why do you think we give you more than one evaluation? Because sometimes you have bad days and sometimes you have good days. What we want is to be able to give you a score based on your knowledge of the material. And the only way we can do that, short of some app someone develops, like hold up to your head and say 83 and move on, is to measure your knowledge of something by evaluating you a number of times. That's exactly what this is, exactly the same idea. The error cancels. If you do that, it'd be impressive. But I, of course, I really kind of control that. So it's not really, a, well, I mean, you do too. I wouldn't just give you 83 if you handed it nothing. <laughs> to prove a point, it's the kind of thing I do, though. Um, <laughs> it really is. Um, there should be patterns of results, basically, as we're talking about here. All right. So that's, yeah. Questions about that? Does that make sense? It does, eh? I hope. Okay. Good. So, most of you have heard me talk about evolution too, so I'm not going to, I won't spend a horribly long period of time on this, but so it'll be a bit, a bit of a refresher. All that said, um, if you have questions, ask them, please. Okay? So, I talked about how we have to look at things from an evolutionary perspective. So, we have to look at natural selection. One of my favorite quotes about evolution, I know we all have our, our list of favorite quotes about evolution. Mine is that the theory of natural selection is so simple that anyone can misunderstand it. I, I, no one knows who said that, but it's a great quote. Um, I learned this quote from an old colleague of mine uh, when I was a postdoc, and I taught his animal behavior course, and he gave me his notes. Uh, and his name was Dave Sherry, and David gave me this. Um, it was like a week before the term started. And he said, "I just got. I just decided to not teach this term. I'm going to buy my my course at, which was if you have a lot of money as a scientist, you could usually just say, "Yeah, I don't feel like it. Pay somebody with this money." He said, you want to teach it? And I went, uh, well, I don't have any. Well, I'll give you all my notes. Uh, sure. Because I had no money. And that's where I got that quote from. So Charles Darwin, there's his dates. If anybody ever asks you to tell me, what was he, you know, he was born in the 1800s and lived and died then. He saw three problems in need of a solution. A lot of you guys know this. And he was not the only person that saw these problems. Everybody, anybody who was a naturalist knew these problems were out there. The first problem was that there was change in flora and fauna of the Earth over time. It's what we think of today as evolution in popular parlance, right? The fossil record showed it to be pretty clear. And that was to people in the mid-1800s. There were fossils of things that didn't exist anymore. 
there were fossils of things that were clearly intermediate forms of, of, of different animals. This was not controversial in, uh, in, in Darwin's day, and it's not controversial now unless you're out of your mind. <laughs> no, the, the evidence is like right in front of you, but if you're just going to deny it because you say, eh, no, well, that's just like saying, uh, this is a $10 bill. And you say, no, it's not. Well, see, that's just, you're just denying things. Okay, fine, it's not a $10 bill. It's a million dollars. You have a million dollars. No, you can't have my 10. <laughs> it's like the only cash I have. I mean, I have money. I just don't have cash. Who can, is anybody here actually carry more than like $20 ever? Really? Okay, it's so a couple of you. That's it. Most of us, it's like, I don't know, I pay for things with my phone. I don't know, it's... There was a time, a different time. I don't know why I have this $10 bill. I took it off my dresser because my son comes in my bedroom daily and looks at it. <laughs> he says, is that your $10 bill? I said, well, I'm sure I know whose it's not. He looks at it and I said, you can't have the 10. And then he says, to me, he says, I say, you come in here and you take money off my dresser, don't you? He goes, no. <laughs> so that was a yes. So everybody knew that was a thing. Second problem is taxonomic relationship among living things. This was something that was weird to people. Um, see, people were really big into classifying stuff. In fact, that was all you could do in biology back then. Right? You could do some anatomy physiology stuff that was going on. But you go around and classify things. So there's all these things that are grasses, all these things that are cats, all these things that are whatever. Right? You know, why are there 800 kinds of beetles? Or what? I, I, it's probably more than 800. And the third problem is adaptation um, different kinds of teeth for different animals. Right, so carnivores have different teeth than herbivores. Humans are omnivores, we've got all different kinds of teeth. Um, and also within a species, right? Like you have different parts of your body that do different things. How does that happen? Right? So people saw these things, and the neat thing is everybody, you can go back and read contemporary things in the 1840s, 1850s, everybody's thinking about these things. Darwin's father, Erasmus Darwin, uh, talked about trying to figure out how these things worked. It was, it was one of those, I don't know, trying to think of what a huge scientific problem is right now. It's hard to say. But I mean, it's something, whatever the hell it would be, it'd be like that. <laughs> that was useful, right? Um, so the solution is natural selection. It provides a mechanism to count how these things happen and how they're interrelated. So, and the thing about it was, when Darwin published Origin of Species, people were like, oh, of course. Really good science, science is like that, though. That's the cool thing about really good science, like breakthrough stuff. By the way, none of us are ever going to do anything as good as Darwin did or as Einstein. That's, there's all them, then there's all of us just plugging along. What's the name of his contemporary that wrote the book around the same time? Yeah, oh, Jesus, his name. Wallace. Yeah. Yeah. 
Wallace said to him, well, sent him a letter saying, I, I, I'm doing this. What do you think? And Darwin's like, um, that's pretty good. I should publish my book. <laughs> so he quickly wrote it. He calls, he calls origins an abstract. And it's, you know, it's not just an abstract. <clears throat> Also, there are uh, 350,000 uh, catalogued species of beetles, there but there's go. an estimate of four and eight million. See? There's lots of beetles. Why are there so many beetles? That's the thing. <laughs> there are there's again, George, there's Paul, there's Ringo, John, and then you want to include Pete Best, maybe. <laughs> That's the beetles. <laughs> You listen to the Mark Maron podcast where he interviews people? It's really good. And he had Paul McCartney on, and he said, do you think the stuff you're doing now is the best thing, stuff you've ever done? He goes, no. And Mark Maron goes, really? He says, I was in the Beatles. <laughs> it's, like, it's a pretty good line. <laughs> so how does it work? Uh, I don't know what transition that is while I'm using that. There's competition among living things. More things are born or hashed or whatever that survive and reproduce. Reproduction occurs with variation. So there's differences between individuals. Oh, am I getting a phone call? Why am I getting a phone call? Not now, Maddie. Uh, message. Sorry, can't talk right now. Custom. Teaching. Um. So reproduction occurs with variation. And the variation is heritable. So we're all a little bit different, basically, is all that's saying. And you take that, you get that from your folks. There's no genetics back then. Darwin kind of just knew it worked this way. His idea of how inheritance works is, 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 is laughably silly, by the way. Um, in light of what we now know about genetics. But he knew that it was inherit that it was heritable. And the, one of the reasons he knew this is he lived on a farm and he saw farmers in he was an English country gentleman. He saw people crossbreeding different individuals to make a better pigeon, to make a better cow. Right? He called that artificial selection. I now have to just check if it's some kind of emergency. Oh, good, not urgent. It's my daughter. So he realized it wasn't just blending of two, though. That was cool. And as we know now, nowadays, it just isn't just blending of two things. So how else is it? Selection determines which individuals enter the adult breeding population. Um, selection is done by the environment. Those who are best suited to the environment reproduce and pass those well-suited characteristics on. So if you store food, but you can't remember where it is, you're going to die. So you don't have your, 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 you don't have any young. Right? Okay. Questions so far? Most of you know this stuff. One hopes. I've taught many of you the same stuff before. So there's also that.
So, reproduction is the key, and not merely survival. There's the person who just called me. She's younger there. That's her 10th birthday. It's 15 years ago. So if you survive to be 128 and have no kids, you're not doing as well as me because I have reproduced. And there's my son John. There he would have been about two. So it's about reproduction and passing your successful characteristics on. So there they are now. That's, what, that's the one on the right. That's a year ago. That's John acting like he owns Parliament Hill. And there's Maddie presenting a paper at the conference of comparative cognition. And then they are at Maddie's convocation when she got her master's degree. Yeah. Now she's a PhD student at Western. Anyway, thought I'd throw that in there, a little update. Driving my children. So, survival of the fittest doesn't mean being a strong like bull. It means, fitness means reproductive success. Also, his friends called him Chucky e. D. That was his street name. It's part of one of the London games? Yeah, it was a, it was a really it was a tough time. DJ Chucky D, as they call him. Um, so the answer to the trilogy of problems is the set of modification of a common ancestor, not random modification, but modification shaped by natural selection. <laughs> Who is it? I think it'd be great if they finished the construction. Sometime, man. <laughs> I swear to God, if it's happening when somebody's running a test, I'm going to go down there and yell at people. So they should be done soon, right? I hope. <laughs> this was supposed to be done last year. This was done on the 15th of August. I didn't say what year. <laughs> no, they were. I mean, look, that would have been had everything gone perfectly. Nothing. Anybody here who owns a home or has been in a home that has had renovations, no, it never goes as planned. My dad was a construction worker. Yeah. He always said that by default, he always assumed he was going to die a month more. Than oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? It's like it's like whenever we do renovations in our house, I budget another 50% of money to what it's going to cost <laughs> because I know I'm going to rip something apart and go, oh, I have to do that too. <laughs> well, I don't do it. I make money and then I exchange, exchange pictures of old prime ministers and queens for the services of people who know what they're doing. I can do small things. Put down a floor. I can put down a floor. Do that. I can uh, hang a lamp. I turn off all the power in the house, though. I don't just kill one thing. Electricity scares the shit out of me. It's like, no, no, no I'm going to call, call the PUC. I want all the power for the whole city turned off. <laughs> I hate electricity. Like, it's so scary. And, like, you put those wires out. The whole thing, even though there's no power, I'm, I, when I put, you know, you attach two wires to the wire out, I'm like this. Because <laughs> I can't help it. I'm scared. Because, see, electricity, you actually can die. If I put a floor down wrong, 
maybe that really nothing bad happens. If I put an outlet in wrong, we die. We get tossed across the room. Yeah. Yes. Dad's also had that happen. Oh, I, so I did too when I was about two. I put a put a paper clip in an outlet. <laughs> so, I'm an idiot. And then when I was about ten, I did something similar. I had an electronics kit, and uh, I was out of batteries, and I made this little radio. Well, there's no batteries. Well, I'll just take these two wires. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. That's what my father taught me about AC and DC. Um, okay, there are other evolutionary theories that are wrong. There's Lamarckism, which is the inheritance of acquired characteristics. A lot of people go, well, what about uh, epigenetics? That's not Lamarckism. Epigenetics is that things can change your genetics over generations um, because of environmental effects. But that's not the same as Lamarckism. Lamarckism would basically mean that if you took mice and cut their tails off and then you cross-breed them, they should have be born with no tail. It's not true. <laughs> Obviously. It's like, how did giraffes get long necks there, Lamarck? Well, one day, a giraffe really stretched really hard to get some leaves. He was French. So was, I'm doing a pretentious French guy there. That was my pretentious. It's also my Descartes impression. Right. Why do people, by the way, think this way? Not the thing about the, the giraffes, that's obviously <laughs> foolish. But if you ask somebody, why do cave dwelling fish not have eyes? And you'll hear people say, because they don't need them. So they don't use them, so they, or in the future, people will have big brains and big head and just small bodies. Why? Now, with cave dwelling fish, the reason is because eyes are expensive to make and they get infected. And you don't, and there's no advantage to having an eye in complete darkness, but there's the possible disadvantage of thinking you get infected and you die. So the giant heads and little bodies, like, uh, what was that movie? Up? Is that the one? Where everybody lives in the anyway, future? Wally? Wally. That's the one. Some animated crap. I don't watch that stuff. It's Wally in reverse, though. What was it? The, uh, the Incredibles? Um, the Toy Story? Bugs Bunny? Wally. That's right. We don't use our appendix, so it's disappearing. No. That's not how it works. We don't. Our appendix was probably for digesting cellulose. That's if you look at uh, animals, uh, you look at mammals that have an appendix. That ones that have big ones is a lot of gut bacteria that lives in there, and it helps them break down cellulose, like wood. Okay, we don't eat wood. We eat cinnamon. Yeah, but if you don't eat, you don't eat a big stick of cinnamon. If you do, you're going to be kind of ill. And also, it's not going to be pleasant. <laughs> uh, because of the splinters. But, so you can't break it down. We can use it. So what ends up happening is we, our diet stops having cellulose in it. We don't eat this stuff anymore. An appendix, as you know, can get infected and rupture and kill you. Up, up until very recently, appendicitis killed you. Like up until like 1945, if you had appendicitis, they go, well, we'll just see what happens. 
I'm serious. It used to kill people. It still kills people. Oh, it's still... Go to the hospital. Yeah, well, but that's different. This is the idea that... Orthogenesis, the idea that there's um, some sort of plan. Right? That's silly. So it's the idea that the goal of all species is to move up some ladder. Well, it's, evolution doesn't have a plan. It just is. It's like saying gravity has a plan. It just, it's a characteristic of how life works. A lot of people think this way. You hear this one a lot. If humans evolved from apes, why are there still apes? They share a common ancestor. By the way, we didn't evolve from apes. We are apes. Um, yeah, let's say evolutionary ladder idea. That's wrong, obviously. Intelligent design is creationism with a fancy name. Um, bizarre. It's also completely antithetical to how science works, right? Because it's like, you could certainly say, I know my mom was taught in a Catholic school by nuns in like the 1950s that evolution was the rules that God put in place this was how our biology teacher said. Yeah, so uh, this is the rules that God made. Okay, so here's how evolution works. <laughs> that was the end of the God discussion. And in fact, that's the, most people believe, if they're religious, believe that's sort of the case. On the other hand, there's a small fringe subset of people who think that there's a designer. All I know is if there is a designer, he or she or it failed a lot of courses. Because... <laughs> a lot of what was designed is poorly done. So it's an extra level of supernatural stuff you don't need. Right? Because we can already explain the data with evolution by natural selection. We don't have to say, oh, and God. It doesn't help you in any way. I'm not saying anything wrong with people's religion. I could have that discussion with you some other time. <laughs> uh, it's not appropriate for here. Buy me, buy me a couple of drinks. I'll tell you what I think about, evolution, or about uh, religion. It's a different matter. So how do we know if behavior itself is an adaptation? Because we talk about adaptations. Adaptations are things that increase fitness, make it more likely that you get selected for it. Well, experiments, first of all, um, obviously. The comparative method. So we compare different species that have different evolutionary histories, and we see if one species does something or one other or another species does something, whatever that something may be, based on their evolutionary history. Okay? We can do math modeling. And that's not just math modeling of behavior today and cognition today, but it's also modeling of how would something have evolved. Right? So if you look at food storing, for example, you'd say, how would food storing evolve? So you'd say, okay, well, the only way it's going to work is if you recover your own stored food. It can't work any other way. Right? Because if it did, well, you guys are all in storing food for all of us in a communal socialist paradise. I'll sit back here and do nothing. 
Oh, right, you store that food for me. Thanks. That was awesome. By the way, while you were all in storing food, I killed all your children. Well, except for I didn't kill mine. Mine are still here. I got food for everybody. I'm lazy. I win. You lose. Food storing disappears. It's not quite that. But the model basically is like that, except with the killing of children. I that is a dramatic effect. So in other words, it's only going to work if I recover my own food. Now, if, I, if it only works if I recover my own food, how am I going to do that? Well, there's a lot of ways. I could do it by smell. No, then I'm going to get everybody else's food, too. I could do it by... I have a special place where I can mind you have a special preference where you put yours. Maybe a little bit of that, but we'll be running in different places. There'll be too much overlap. What about I just remember where I put my food, you remember where you put yours? Oh, I see, I see, In fact, that's what got all the stuff going in the 80s and 90s, and even up till today, about food story, was a math model by Anderson and Krebs in 1978 about the evolution of food story. Right, so we did that, and we said, like, if we can do that, we should predict certain things. Then we ended up doing stuff about hippocampal volume, stuff about memory for spatial locations versus other kinds of memory. Um, and then we could say that's probably an adaptation. Right? The spatial memory superiority of food storing birds or difference between stores and non-stores is probably an adaptation. Because it fits in with, well, this whole synthetic approach idea, but it fits in, evolution should have worked that way. And then we got behavior, cognition, and sort of the neuroscience thing. Questions? Yeah, that's probably time to stop. Got stuff done. Uh, and I'll see you guys next time. Take a look at those, uh, that link I sent you guys. It's not too long to read. Thanks, everyone. These are godless times, Mrs. Snell. I'll drink to that.
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want, but if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GAU license. Um, I hope you learned something, but if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find, uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the, uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So, uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're, they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.